And once you have it, go ahead and turn to Romans 6. We are going verse by verse through the Word of God, going through the book of Romans. And we're going to start in verse 1 today. And before we keep your hand up if you need a Bible, look, um, before we get into the text today, I want to start out by reading a story from history that relates to the text we're going to be in today. So let me go ahead and read this. You guys can listen. This is not in the Bible. This is just a story I came across. It says, in the 14th century, two brothers fought for the right to rule over a dukedom in what is now Belgium. The elder brother's name was Renald, but he was commonly called Crassus, a Latin nickname meaning fat, for he was horribly obese. And after a heated battle, Renald's younger brother, Edward, led a successful revolt against him and assumed the title of duke over his lands. But instead of killing Renald, Edward devised a curious imprisonment. He had a room in the castle built around Crassus, a room with only one door. The door was not locked, the windows were not barred, and Edward promised Renald that he could regain his land and his title any time that he wanted to. All he would have to do is leave the room. The obstacle to freedom was not in the doors or the windows, but with Renald himself. Being grossly overweight, he could not fit through the door, even though it was of near normal size. All Renald needed to do was diet down to a smaller size and then walk out a free man with all he had before his fall. However, his younger brother kept sending him an assortment of tasty foods, and Renald's desire to be free never won out over his desire to eat. Some would accuse Duke Edward of being cruel to his older brother, but he would simply reply, my brother's not a prisoner. He may leave when he so wills, but Renald stayed in that room for 10 years until Edward himself was killed in battle. So that story has some parallels to our Christian walk or our following Jesus as through our faith in Jesus, as it says up on the screen behind me, we are dead to sin and as such, we have been set free from sin and in that freedom, we have the choice to no longer live in the captivity of sin. But instead, we too, like Renald, can keep choosing to give in to the temptations of our flesh and live in a life of defeat, discouragement, and imprisonment instead of the victory, joy, and freedom Jesus has won for us. But that is not God's will for you and me that have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. And in today's text, we will see Paul give us the tools to know, and when I say no, it's not N-O, what I mean is K-N-O-W. I'm going to re repeat that a couple times because this is what he wants us to know these things, but he's going to give us the tools to know how to live in the victory God has given us over sin through our faith in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. So just to recap, we finished up Romans 5 last week, and we saw Paul explain yet another uh, another um, basically benefit of, of our salvation. Like you're saved, here's the benefits. He spends uh, verse, or chapter five talking about all these benefits of salvation. And the last one was 
that God has saved you from sin, which is a huge benefit of salvation because before you were saved, as we talked about last week, you were a slave to it. You couldn't help but sin, and sin is destructive. So you were slowly destroying yourself to the point of death, and God has freed you from that. And this week, we're gonna see Paul start to explain how our new lives free of sin, our new lives in Christ should look. And it's a process, a theological term that he's starting to discuss. He's gonna discuss this in Romans 6 through 8 that we call sanctification, okay? Sanctification. To be sanctified means that one is set apart. So because you've been justified positionally with God through your faith in Jesus. Justified, remember, means just as if you had no sin. You've been forgiven of sin. God sees you as right because Jesus paid the price for that sin on the cross, so you're forgiven of it through your faith in him. But because you've been justified positionally with God, now God is sanctifying you practically, or he's getting rid of the sin or the harmful things in your life over the course of following him in this world. Or he's basically, to put it in simpler terms, he's making us more like Jesus because that is what will benefit us in life. It's what will lead to you being blessed or happy. That's what God wants. He wants you to be happy and you can only have that through a relationship in Jesus, all right? And, and the other thing is he wants to set us apart so that he can use us to accomplish his glorious work in this world, Okay? So we were dead in sin until Jesus saved us from it, but now that you're saved from it, God wants to make you dead to sin and helping you not do it anymore. You have been freed from the penalty of sin, but now God is teaching us to live in the freedom of the power of sin. Basically, sin had power over you, it no longer does, so you have to be taught how to live in that freedom so that we can avoid the harmful consequences and experience the happiness God intends for us. So that's where we're gonna pick it up in Romans 6. Let me pray one more time for the word and then we will get into the text. Dear Heavenly Father, again, this being something that I think that any one of us that has been a Christian for some time, we would say we know these things, but to live them out in our life is a whole nother thing that we have to learn. We can say we believe it, but to live it is a challenge. It's something you have to teach us. And we know that blessedness comes for those who hear and obey the word of God. It's to our benefit to learn these things, not just know them so that we can truly experience that blessed, that happy life you intend for us. And, And we that have been saved of our sin are so thankful for the lives that you saved us from. We look back at how we were before you came into our lives and see all the harm that we caused ourselves and others, and we're so thankful you've saved us from that. And so we don't want to keep living in those things that you've saved us from, because you've set us free. And as your word says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So Lord, just as Paul wanted his readers to know these truths, I pray you really just put these into our our, our, our very innermost being, even if we already know these in our head, but in such a way that we can leave here with the faith to live them out in our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So it says in verse one, Romans six, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So Paul here 
starts out by addressing a question, okay? And that question is along the lines of, okay, so if I'm getting you right, Paul, you're saying that where sin abounds, grace abounds more. That's what he said last week. Wherever there's sin, God forgives that sin. You can't out-sin God. It's just an opportunity for him to show more grace to you through faith in Jesus Christ. So isn't that like a good thing? Shouldn't we just sin more? And then God can show grace more? And what I would say is this idea of continuing in sin, as verse one says, it's written in the present active tense. So what that means is a lifestyle of willful, habitual sin. Like basically just doing what God says is wrong and having no conviction about it. Basically how we were before Jesus came into our life. Just continuing to live as we always did, which is very different than the battle we all face as Christians really daily where God reveals harmful characteristics about us, harmful things that we're doing. Sometimes we don't even know them. They just, God shows them to us and we're convicted because the Holy Spirit's inside of us telling us you shouldn't do this. This is bad for you. This is bad for other people. And we repent of those sins. We go to God, basically, we go to him. That's where repentance is. We go to God. We ask him to help us, cleanse us, help us live in that freedom that he's offered us. That's a continual process that every Christian goes through through this whole entire life until we're with God and we're like him, okay? That's normal. But what he's talking about is just this no conviction, no remorse, just this, I'm just gonna do what I wanna do despite if it's completely opposite of what God tells me to do, I don't care. And his answer to that question is absolutely not. That is super sus. In fact, that was right, right? I used that, right? <laughs> huh? That's what he told me when I was driving the youth kids home. He's like, Dad, don't use that word. And then another youth kid said he used it right. So I just wanted to prove him wrong. <laughs> All right. So like what Paul, not to distract, sorry. In fact, he says like, this, is an, this should be an inconceivable thought to anyone that's truly been born again through faith in Jesus because the reason being is your relationship with sin has permanently changed, been changed by God. We who were once dead in our sin, according to Ephesians 2.1, now in fact have died to sin, as verse 2 says here. And it would make no logical sense for us to live in something that we have died to. Now, Greg... Moral, if you heard a couple of weeks ago, give a great teaching uh, about three weeks ago on the book of, from the book of Galatians on the difference between living in the grace of God and living under the law of God, or really, as he pointed out, the law of man, because we're really good about making rules and putting them on ourselves and other people that God never, ever told us to do, okay? So he talked about the difference of that. And one of the things, if you remember, Greg said was that some people might look at what he was teaching is dangerous, is irresponsible, because it, contribute, it could contribute to a person thinking along the lines of the question that Paul is asking us here in verse one. And you may have heard it said before by some people, oh man, you can't preach too much grace. If you preach too much grace, you know, people are gonna get really wishy-washy and fall in the Lord, and they're gonna think they can do whatever they want. 
you know, you got to lay down the law. You got to tell people, don't do this, don't do that. Otherwise, they never will learn. In fact, I've heard multiple times throughout the years, people accuse our church of being too gracie, as if that was such a thing. Or the, the fact what they're getting at is that we emphasize the grace of God too much in our teaching. But here's the thing. I'll tell you right now that when I hear that, I say thank you. Because honestly, the emphasis of the New Testament is grace, right? That is the good news. So I don't know how you can teach God's word and teach the gospel without emphasizing grace, okay? But after Paul just got done proving that salvation is not by works, but rather solely by the grace of God in the first five chapters of Romans, there most likely were some people expressing those same concerns, going like, whoa, Paul, you're a little too gracie here, okay? This could be dangerous. And Paul makes sure to respond to those concerns here in Romans 6 by telling people, here's the thing, guys. It's not so much about telling people no, as in N-O. Don't do this. Don't do that. That's bad. It's not so much about that. It's about making, pe- making, sure, people under- or making sure you understand what people know when you're trying to help them with sin, as in K. N-O-W. And there's three specific things, if you guys are taking notes, I want you to write these down because these, it's good to know these things and repeat. I, in fact, I found myself this week as I was studying through this and I had my own struggles with sin, repeating these three things, things, things to me. They're right up there. But to myself and just reminding myself of these things that Paul wants us to know here. All right, the first is that we are dead to sin. And he's going to spend verses three through five talking about that. The second thing is that we are, because we're dead to sin, we're free from sin, which he covers in verses six through 11. And then the third thing is that means we no longer have to live in sin. Okay? We are dead to sin, and as such, we are free from sin, which means we no longer have to live in sin. And he covers that last point in verses 12 through 14. So he goes on in verse and he says, do you not know? Again, this is, he's talking to us as Christians. He's saying, this is fundamental. You need to know this, okay? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So the first thing I want you to note again is that we are dead to sin because through your faith in Jesus, you've been given a new identity in Christ. Paul explaining in verses three through five how baptism is meant to symbolically represent this identity change that you've had through placing your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the Greek word used for baptized here means to immerse or overwhelm something. And we see that word used for lots of different instances in the Bible. We see the Bible talk about being baptized or immersed in water or covered over with water. We see a baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts 1 through 5, where you're immersed or covered with the Holy Spirit. In Mark 10 through 39, Jesus is talking to his disciples And he's talking about sharing in the baptism of suffering, basically being covered or immersed in suffering. And then here, 
verse three, Paul's talking about being immersed or covered over in Jesus. So what he's saying is when you choose to be baptized in water, you're giving the world around you a visual demonstration of what it looks like to be baptized into Christ Jesus when you're saved, okay? When you go under the water, it represents your old self, the person that was born a sinner, like we talked about last week, dying and going to the grave with Jesus, as verse four says, because he died to pay the penalty for your sins so we could be forgiven of them and reconciled to God. So that's what that is symbolic of when you go under the water, at which point the Holy Spirit comes into your life to regenerate you or resurrect you back to life just as Jesus was resurrected, water being symbolic of the Holy Spirit. That's why you're immersed in it and coming up out of the water when you are baptized being symbolic of you rising from the dead into this new life, into this new identity, following Jesus instead of being a slave to sin, okay? Remember, as we talked about last week, you were born identifying with Adam, having inherited his sinful nature, but through your faith in Jesus, that person you used to be has died and you've been born again with a new identity found in Jesus. And God has said, you are no longer a sinner, now you are a saint. I'm gonna repeat that because some of us need to tell ourselves that today. And in fact, repeat after me. I am no longer a sinner. I am a saint. All right? There's no middle ground. If you placed your faith in Jesus, you're either a saint or you ain't, as Vernon J. Vernon McGee used to say, okay? But you are a saint now, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can live like one. This being key for us to understand so that we don't inhibit the sanctifying work God is wanting to do in you on a daily basis as you follow Jesus. As Paul said at the beginning of verse three, it is fundamentally important for us to understand that our new identity in Christ is being dead to sin. Because here's the thing, and I'm sure you would agree with me, the enemy wants you to believe differently. He wants to tell you that, oh, no matter how hard you try, you can't stop doing this sin in your life. And that is directly contradictory to what God tells us in his word. God basically has set you free from that nature where you have to give into temptation because he's given you the Holy Spirit to overcome it. And he tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the temptations in your life are no different than from what others experience. I mean, every single one of us goes through the same things, the same temptations. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. And so when the enemy's telling us that and we're buying that lie, that, they're, oh man, I just can't do this. Well, you can't, but the Holy Spirit can. God can, and he's inside of you and he's enabled you to do it. And he's told us in his word, see, being tempted isn't the sin, but he's saying when you are tempted, I'm always gonna give you the way out. I'm gonna give you the power to choose to do what is best for you, Okay. Now, a question that might arise from what Paul's saying here, just on a side note, is because um, he's talking about baptism. Do you need to be baptized to be saved? Some of us grew up in different backgrounds. We're gonna answer that differently. But 
Here's what I'm gonna tell you, no, okay? Paul made it clear up to this point, what in Romans? That you're saved by God's grace through faith and faith alone, no works, right? Including baptism. That would be a work if you looked at it that way as a part of your salvation. The proof of that is the thief on the cross that was next to Jesus who believed in him and that's all he had time to do. And Jesus told him in Luke 23, 43, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise or heaven. Amen? So if you're gonna say you need to be baptized to be saved, there's an exception and I don't like exceptions, okay? God's consistent. He's always the same. Now here's the better question I would submit to you though. Should you get baptized if you're a Christian? Absolutely. I would even argue that Paul talks about it in such a way throughout the New Testament that it's not even an optional thing. As a Christian, you should be baptized. And Jesus commands us to do it in Matthew 28, 19. So we should do it out of obedience. But your salvation is not dependent on it. And here's the way I like to think of it, all right? The day I married my wife, I made a lifelong commitment to her and we gave each other rings that were symbolic of that commitment. Now, if we didn't have rings, that commitment would still very much be there. We still would be married, but I would wonder why she didn't wanna wear that ring to publicly identify with me. Baptism is the way a believer publicly identifies with Jesus. It, like a wedding ring, is an outward symbol of your inward commitment. And so what good reason would there be to not identify with the one who you've given your life to because he gave his life to you? Amen? So if you are a Christian and you haven't been baptized, I would say you should get baptized. Come talk to me and we will make it happen. Whether you want to do it nice in the baptismal warm or whether you want to go out in the ocean and freeze to death. I don't care. We'll do it either or, okay? We'll just make it quicker if we go somewhere cold. Um, So all that to say is, going on to verse six, he says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now the Greek word used there in verse six for brought to nothing carries the idea that sin has been rendered inactive or been paralyzed. And this is something Paul says in verse six, you need to know this. Sin is in effect, in fact, powerless. However, it doesn't mean that sin was completely annihilated, which I think you would all agree. We obviously know it's still out there because we're still tempted to do it, right? But when our flesh is telling us to do that thing that we know God says not to do, Paul is telling us that it can talk all it wants but Jesus' work on the cross has rendered it powerless to make you do anything unless you choose to listen to it, okay? And if you're a newer to being a Christian, this is one of the things that we celebrate when we do communion. If you guys are still figuring out what communion is, it's remembrance and celebration of what Jesus did on the cross. And there's two parts of it, okay? There's the, the juice we drink, or wine, some, some churches drink wine, wine or juice, whatever it is, but it's symbolic of Jesus' blood. And what we're celebrating is that his blood atoned for our sins. It paid the just price for our sins so we could be forgiven of him. Therefore, it, it set us free of the penalty of sin. But then there's the bread or a cracker, and that's symbolic of his body, which is broken for us, all right? And what the Bible tells us regarding that is that 
Isaiah 53, five says, and with his wounds, we are healed. Or basically that because of his death on the cross, because of his death that sent him to the grave, we've gone to the grave with him as we've read already. And that sinful nature of ours died with him so that we're also free not only from the penalty of sin, we're free from the power of sin. Our sinfulness being one of the main things that he healed us from, okay? So that's good to remember when you're taking communion, you're drinking the cup and you're remembering his blood that was paid the price for your sins and you're free from the penalty of sin, you're forgiven of every sin you've ever done, every sin you could ever do. And then when you take that bread, you're remembering that because his body was broken and he died and went to the grave, your old man went to the grave too and you're free from the power of sin as well, okay? Which is something we need to remind ourselves because there's that voice of the enemy in our flesh that's constantly trying to trick us into believing differently. It says in verse seven, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So this is the second thing I want you to note. We are free from sin. Here's what you need to understand. A dead man cannot have control over you. So since our old self was crucified with Jesus, as verse six says, we can know that we have been set free from the sin that our old self was a slave to, as Paul tells us in verse six. And as such, another freedom you enjoy is the freedom from death, which was a consequence of sin, And that's what the Bible calls eternal life. Death has no hold on you. Death was the worst thing that could happen to you in this life, but now it's become the best best thing. The wages of sin is death, but Jesus took upon himself that wage our sin deserved on the cross, and then he conquered death in being resurrected, and he will never die again, as it says there, because his work on the cross paid for all the sins of mankind in full, and as such, death has no dominion or no longer has dominion over Jesus as verse 9 says and since we've been raised to life with Jesus as verse 5 told us death has no power over us as well and as I was saying it's become the best thing because the moment I want you to hear me this is a promise the moment you take your last breath on this earth you take your first breath with Jesus all right because it says us in 2 Corinthians 5 8 yes we are fully confident and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies for then we will be at home with the Lord. To be absent of the body is to be present with the Lord, okay? No delays. That's what we're living for or looking forward to. Third thing is just as the life Jesus, he lives to God, or this is the third thing we've been set free from. And just as Jesus, it says he lives to God, or the idea is he lives for God the Father, as verse 10 tells us, now we're free also to live a new life for God with Jesus, as verse 8 says. That new life with Jesus being described in twofold, all right? This Colossians 3.10, I want you to listen up, because this is what it looks like. If you're wanting to sum up what this new life, this, this new nature, this new identity with Jesus is supposed to be, Colossians 3.10 sums up what goes into a lot more detail in the New Testament, but that is put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know the creator 
First and foremost, your relationship with God is the priority. That's why he saved you. And become like him. So our new nature as a Christian is this natural inclination to want to know God first and foremost through this relationship we've been given with him, to want to understand him better, to want to understand his will for us. That's naturally in us because the Holy Spirit's inside of us, guiding us, drawing us, pushing us toward God. And then as we get to know God and see how awesome he is and how the things he has for us are so much better than anything we could ever plan for ourselves, we want to become like him. We want to be changed by him, okay? But the relationship is the priority because it's through that closeness with God that he's able to talk to you. He's able to reveal his plans for you. He's able to help you with the things that aren't of him that he wants to get rid of. So you've got to have that relationship first and foremost, all right? Now, you better believe that the enemy is still going to try to convince you to live for yourself rather than for God as your old self used to, as he wants to kill, steal from, and destroy you. And he knows that your flesh is susceptible to temptation, which is why it still feels like a battle to follow God every day, even though you are a Christian, even though you placed your faith in Jesus. But what Paul is telling us in this chapter is that that battle has already been won by Jesus. And as such, I need to know, remember K-N-O-W, that the enemy has no authority or power over me unless I give it to him. We're trying to teach our youngest son, Zeke, now, because he's four, and he's at an age where he's got to learn to obey. And there's certain habits that, like in our household, like when you eat, you got to eat at the table. So like we're trying to teach him these things. You can't just go and eat your chips all over and get them all over the floor or whatever. Just eat at the table. And so he listens, but he's also kind of like, like, like squirrel, like, you know, like he can be, he can be led astray really easy by listening to other voices in the house. And he's got these older brothers that sometimes are distracting to him. And so, you know, I'll leave him at the table to eat a meal. And next thing I know, he's running all over the house and making a mess. And I'm like, what, what's going on? And, and he, Benny told me, or Sammy told me, and and it's like, well, don't listen to them. They have no authority over you. I have authority over you, you know? So it's like the same way in our life. We're kind of like a toddler and we're learning that God's the only one that has authority. He's the only one we need to listen to his voice and believe what it says. We don't need to listen to any other voices, all right? And this leads to the third thing Paul wants us to know is that we no longer have to live in sin, okay? We no longer have to live in sin. Verse 12, it says, let us not sin therefore, or let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but instead present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life in your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. So because I'm dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus, as verse 11 says, I have the choice to not let sin reign in my life, as Paul says in verse 12. But sometimes, just as sometimes when, let's say, somebody gets out of prison after being in prison for a long time, it can be hard for them to learn outside, learn to live a normal life outside of the prison walls. They're, in a sense, in those habits that they were in for so long of what a prisoner looked like and the way that they thought and act. I don't know, Stephen, you, you can probably answer this. Yes, that's true, right? Um, but 
you have to learn to live in this new freedom, right? Of this old life that you got used to, but Jesus has won you this new life where you're free and it's something you gotta learn over time as a Christian. So what Paul's telling us here in verse 13 is to how to practically do this, all right? This is the practicality. If you're somebody that's like, well, tell me how to do this. Tell me how to live not in sin. This is what he tells us to do, okay? And it's a two-parter. There's two parts to it. The first key to living in freedom is to not allow the parts of your body to be involved in harmful things, not in sinful things, okay? He uses the word members in verse 11. And that just simply means your ears, your lips, your hands, your eyes, your mind, any body part, think about it. And so like, in essence, what he's saying is like, don't watch things that God says are harmful to you. Don't listen to things that he says are evil. Don't let your hands take part in things that he says are bad. It's very practical information. He's saying don't use this stuff for um, the enemy because basically he says that God, God basically freed us from sin so that our body parts could be used for righteousness, not unrighteousness, as he says in verse 13. And a better translation of that Greek word used for instruments is weapons. And like what he's saying is that when you allow, when you listen to the enemy and you let him use your members for unrighteous things, you're in a sense giving in to him and you're, you're, you're in a sense willfully losing the spiritual battle. You're, you're fighting on the enemy's side when God's freed you from that, when you don't have to be, all right? So the first part of it is use your members for things that God says are good for you and right. Now, here's the second part, and this is important because what I would say is it's not just enough, like I said in the beginning, to have that mentality of like, okay, just do good, just do this, just do this, don't do that. No, what he says is instead use your body parts to do the things God says are good and right. Okay, so instead of doing things that you, God says are harmful and wrong, intentionally use your members, use your eyes, use your hands, use your voice, Use it to do things God says are good for you, are right. Replace those bad things with good things, and then you'll be using weapons for the right side. You'll be using them for God. You'll be winning that spiritual battle because any side that has a spirit of weapons always wins the battle. Amen? Now, it's basically, if I had to sum this up, occupy yourself with the things of God and you will follow God. If you occupy yourself with the things of the enemy, you're gonna let him lead you into following him, okay? Now, you might've heard this said before that idle hands are the devil's playground. It's not a Bible verse that says that, but the principle proves to be very true biblically and what I've found in my own life is that I do best in my relationship with God when I am busy following him and that involves utilizing my body parts um, to serve him in life. Now, again, I'm not teaching this mentality of like, oh, I just gotta do this, I gotta do this. It's choosing to do the things God says are good for you, using your time to glorify him, using your time to do what he says is right. When I do that, when I'm busy doing that, then it's really easy to follow him. It's really easy to stay close to him. It's really easy to hear his voice. It's really easy to see the things that are harmful for what they are and say, no, I don't want that. I'm not gonna do that, okay? And I would say more times than not, when I'm 
I guess you could say, not using my time wisely, when I'm complacent, when I have a lot of free time, and, and by and far, when I'm counseling people that are struggling with sin in their lives, and this isn't just like, you know, sometimes we focus on outward sin that we can really see, like alcoholism, drug use, sexual immorality. No, not just that. People are struggling with like gossiping about people or murmuring and complaining about things because that's, that God says do everything without complaining. That's a sin to be someone that's like a complainer or murmuring. When, and some of us struggle with that. And when we're struggling with that, by and far what I see is those people have too much time on their hands. All right, no, I'm, I'm serious. There, there's a lot of complacency Instead of choosing to utilize their time, their members with the things God says is good, and because of that, they're susceptible to listening to the enemy's lies or trying to fill that empty time with things that aren't good that the enemy's placing before them. When if they would just fill their time with the things of the Lord, guess what? They'd see what the Lord has for them is so much better than anything this world does, and they wouldn't want that stuff. Or they'd be so blessed because when you honor God and you do the things God says, guess what? He glorifies himself and you're blessed. He, he, it produces fruit in your life. They'd be so blessed by doing the things of the Lord. Instead of complaining, they would just be praising, okay? It replaces it. And it's really practical. That This is just what he's saying. He's saying, Use your eyes to read God's word. Use your hands to serve other people. Use your ears and mouth to communicate and have relationships with other believers. That's how you practically live in that freedom. And you'll experience victory. You'll experience the victory Jesus already won for you if you choose to do those things. Paul going on to say in verse 14 that you have the choice to use your body parts to do what God says is right. Because sin will no longer have dominion over you, or you no longer, or it no longer has the control over you as it once did, because through your faith in Jesus, you are not under the law, but under grace. You see, the law, we talked about this last week, it, it, it defines what it takes to be right with God, and it clearly shows us that we fall short of his standards. So it doesn't free us from sin or make sin more apparent. So what that means is you can't sit there and try to be a legalistic Christian or try to be good. Try to follow the law. If that's your focus, you are gonna have problems. It is God's grace that not only has freed us from sin, but it's God's grace that also helps you live in that freedom, okay? So we've relied on God and his grace to save us from our sin. You gotta keep relying on God to live in that freedom, and that takes you being close to him because what I've learned over the years of following Jesus is that when I allow distance between me and Jesus, guess what? fills that gap. The enemy, his lies, and sin. If I don't leave a gap, then I'm just going hard for the Lord. In every other relationship, if that relationship is close, every other relationship in my life, it just is fruitful. But if that relationship is suffering, or that relationship, there's distance, and it allows me to suffer, it makes every other relationship in my life suffer. So the answer is, if you're experiencing that sin in your life, close the gap. Instead of choosing sin, which is the opposite direction of God, you choose to go to God. And you close the gap, and he's there waiting for you to help you. Amen? All right. So, Paul posed this question, going back to the beginning in verse one. Why don't we just keep on sinning so God can show us even more grace? And his answer is, because God's grace has radically changed you. 
The old person that used to live only to satisfy their flesh is dead and long gone, and you are a new person in Jesus who desires to know God and live with him and for him. And as such, it's inconceivable for somebody that has been born again to think it's okay to just keep sinning and be comfortable with it. As John tells us in 1 John 3, 4 through 9, he says, everyone who sins is breaking God's law. For all sin is contrary to the law of God. And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins and there is no sin in him. Anyone who continues to live in sin will not, or live in him will not sin. But anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. Again, the point of all that is not to say, if you're not a perfect Christian after you're saved, you're not really saved. That's not what he's saying. He's saying what I talked about in the very beginning. If you, there's something to matter if you can just do, keep doing, living your old life, just doing what God says is wrong and not have any conviction over it. He's like, that's impossible because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You have God to lead you and he's telling you it's bad if that's the case. So there's no way you can just keep doing that as a practice. I like what Charles Spurgeon had to say about it. He says, God has so changed your nature by his grace that when you sin, you shall be like a fish on dry land. You shall be out of your element and long to get into a right state again. You cannot sin for you love God. The sinner may drink sin down as the ox drinketh down water, but to you it shall be as the brine of the sea. You may become so foolish as to try the pleasures of the world, but they shall be no pleasures to you. Any grace that doesn't change my life surely could never save it, okay? Maybe you've heard it before. God loves you just as you are. You come to him just as you are. You don't clean yourself up because he can't, but he loves you way too much to leave you that way, okay? It's for our benefit to be changed. And for the Christian, sin is always temporary as God works it out of us. These changes, they don't happen all at once. They happen over time, but slowly and surely they keep happening and they become more frequent as God continues to sanctify us and conform us to the image of his son. And today, Paul gave us the tools or the things we need to know so that we can allow that sanctifying work to happen. And those things are, just to repeat them, is that you're dead to sin. And because you're dead to sin, you are free from sin. And because you're free of sin, you no longer have to live in sin. And that is so good just to memorize that and keep repeating it to yourself when the enemy tries to tempt you differently. So I'm gonna have the worship team come up here and we're gonna have a chance to do communion together because the best way to respond if there is sin in our life is to just be open and honest with God because here's the thing, the devil wants to fool you into somehow you're, you should be condemned you should be guilty. You should hide it from God. You're not hiding anything from God. He saw that sin. The Bible said as we went through not that long ago that Christ demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, he died for us. And what that means is not just that you were sinning. He saw every sin, knew even the sins you do after he saved you, 
and yet he loved you despite that and saved you anyways. And he paid the price on the cross when he died for every sin you've ever done and every sin you could ever do. So you never have to wonder if you placed your faith in Jesus, if you're forgiven, you are forgiven. And the best thing you can do is not stay in that place separated from God because that's where the enemy wants you, but to run to God, clinging to that promise, knowing that I'm forgiven, Lord, and I'm sorry, and I don't want to live in this old way anymore, and I need you to help me learn to walk in that victory you've already won me, and God will help you do that. That's why he gave you the Holy Spirit. That's why the Holy Spirit's called the helper. So often we try to do it in our own power. I'm just gonna pull up my bootstraps and I'm not gonna sin no more. It doesn't work. You were saved. You were forgiven of your sin by the grace of God. You can only no longer sin by the grace of God. You need to be close to God and look to him to help you not sin. Amen? So this is an opportunity while we get to communion elements to be open and honest with God, to run to him confess the sin knowing that he'll be just to forgive it and then he'll cleanse you and help you live in righteousness if you're somebody that's joining us today and you're like you realize there's things in your life that are matter you don't have and you don't have a relationship with jesus and you feel helpless like i keep destroying my life i keep doing these things that are wrong i keep you know i whatever it might be it's because you can't fix yourself and god doesn't require you to fix yourself to come to him he actually says just come as you are I, need, I, I love you as you are. Come to me and I will help you first know those things that are wrong in your life and then I'll help you be free of them and live in the freedom that I offer. You'll experience the happiness and the peace and the joy and the contentment that you're looking for and that you're not finding anything else in this world. God's here in this place right now and you, you can... You may have came here without a relationship with him, but you can leave with one. So what we're gonna do is we'll have our prayer team around the room. If you wanna pray to receive Jesus Christ, we can lead you in a prayer. If you wanna pray, pray for sin. The Bible talks about in James that we're to confess our sins to one another. There's healing that comes with that as we just are out in the open and we humble ourselves because we all struggle with the same things. And we have, we, we're reminded that God gave us our brothers and sisters to bear these burdens together, to be there, to help us with them. Come up and get prayer and get those communion elements on your own and then save them because we're gonna, we're gonna do them, we're gonna do communion together after this song. So you'll have some time. Lord God, just be with us right now. May we be sensitive to your Holy Spirit, Lord. May we not try to hide anything from you that you already know. It's the best thing for us just to be open and honest if there's things we're struggling with, if we're struggling having patience as parents, if we're struggling loving our spouse the way you tell us to unconditionally and sacrificially. Lord, if we're struggling with murmuring and complaining, if we're struggling with something like, like sexual sin or whatever it might be, Lord, may we just be honest May we just come before you in humility and, and look to you for, to help us. Even as that word was given earlier, may we just surrender. We try to hold on to these things. We say we want freedom from them, but we're afraid because maybe these things have become somewhat of an idol in our lives that we're afraid to be without them because we just don't have the faith that what you have is better. And we just, the best thing for us is to surrender those things to you right now. Give them to you. 
Trust that what you have is better so we can receive it, Lord. Meet your people in this time as we respond, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.